So if you don't believe it, it's about really just being open to exploring this phenomenon that is well documented throughout nature. listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 56 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. Before we get started with our guest, Lisa Tully, I wanted to take a moment to mention to you that I got to be a guest on the Covered in Pet Hair podcast, hosted by Isabel Alvarez Arada, and it was so much fun. First, Isabel encourages you to have a boozy alcoholic adult beverage during the interview. And then in addition to just interviewing you to hear your story, she also makes up all these games. So we played a dog trivia game and also a Baltimore trivia game since I'm from Baltimore. And one of them I got 100% on and one of them I did not. I'll let you listen to the podcast so you can figure out which one was which. But I got to talk with her all about starting the Believe in Dog podcast, about my volunteer work with Be More Dog here in Baltimore, and about starting the Dog Health Journal. So we really covered a lot of ground, and it's really so much fun. I hope you'll check it out. I'll have a link in the show note for you to the YouTube video. Okay, so today we are talking to Lisa Tully from Ireland. So first of all, she has the world's most amazing accent. But I think you're going to be even more interested to hear about being an animal communicator. And I have to admit, sometimes I get a little nervous to share conversations that I've had like this because I know not everybody is into things that are woo-woo. And what I think is so fascinating about Lisa's story, and that I hope that you'll enjoy also, is that she actually has a very science-centered background. She has a college degree in science, and she actually used to work in the pharmaceutical industry. And I really love the idea that these things are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to be a science person or a woo-woo person. I think that there's a lot of room for everything. And I actually think that science and woo-woo are actually all very interconnected when you get into the quantum realm, which I don't want to pretend to be like an expert on, but it's something I've heard of. And for any of you who follow online Dr. Isla Fishburne, who is one of the supreme woo-woo beings that I have heard of and worked with personally with my dogs as well, uh, I thought it was really interesting that Lisa has studied under some of the same mentors as Dr. Isla. So I shared on a recent episode, I think it's the one with Meredith May, uh, that I have worked with an animal communicator before, and I share that story again with Lisa. And I also wanted to tell you that I have actually had negative experiences working with animal communicators as well. Well, with one person specifically. And what I later found out was that that person I had worked with, she was actually very sick with cancer and passed away shortly after I had worked with her. So I've tried not to hold that against anyone. But I have gotten other recommendations for communicators that other people trust and have worked with. And I have had some really amazing experiences. And it's been a really helpful tool in our toolbox. And one of the things that we used it for was a couple years ago, we went on a vacation where my husband and I were both leaving and we couldn't take the dogs. And that was the first time since we've had these dogs, Penny and Nino, uh, that we had, had taken a trip like that. And Nino is a very fearful guy. He's very hesitant and untrustworthy of anybody that's not Tim and I. And so we were going to have one of our friends stay at our house for a week, and we wanted to let Nino know this. So we did a session with an animal communicator. We put a plan in place for how to get Nino used to our friend that was going to be staying at our house. We actually had another uh, Reiki practitioner come over to our house and do some sessions with all of us, including our friend, to help just put some good 
vibes, some good juju on the whole situation. And sure enough, we had a very successful trip where Tim and I left and Nino got along great with our friend, had this great week. They were snuggling together all week. And um, what's been really funny after the fact is that now when our friend comes over, Nina's back too. I don't know who you are, dude. <laughs> but for that one specific week that we were really nervous about, everything went according to plan. And I was just thinking about Reiki. I'm not sure that we've ever talked about that on the podcast, but I was actually attuned to learn how to do Reiki back in 2014. And that's what made me open to this idea of animal communication with how to find uh, reputable animal communicators. And there's a time in the interview where Lisa and I are talking and she's explaining how she works with animals over photographs. And I was like, oh, yes, that makes total sense to me. And I was realizing when I listened back to it that it makes total sense to me because I've learned about Reiki. But if it doesn't make total sense to you, uh, don't worry. <laughs> but she really is talking about real things there. Um, I specifically learned Usui Reiki. I have not been super great about keeping up with my practice, but at the time I learned it, uh, it was when my dog Lucy, my first dog, who the Believe in Dog podcast logo is is modeled after, uh, Lucy was very sick with a mystery illness uh, that turned out to be a very rare form of cancer. And I had been working for months to get her properly diagnosed, and I didn't know what was wrong with her. And I was literally doing everything and anything that I could to try to help her. And so that was what motivated me to learn Reiki, because I thought, if this is something that can help her, I want to learn it. And so Reiki is a form of energy healing. Um, and it's really fascinating. I feel like we should do an episode in the future with somebody who's much more knowledgeable about it than I am, because that, that's another fascinating topic also. But getting back to animal communication, I understand that this might be a topic that not everybody's really open to, and Lisa understands that as well. But I think that she has such a unique perspective on everything, given that she has this very solid science foundation, education, and upbringing. And she's also had a very interesting spiritual journey working, you know, and living amongst the Tibetan monks and the Dalai Lama's community and having a meditation practice. So Lisa and I are going to hear all about her story, about how she grew up with animals and where her education took her, the trip to the Amazon rainforest that she had always wanted to do and how she first had an experience that led her to believe that animal communication was a real thing with an ocelot named Millie. And then how she went on to explore her practice and, and what that looks like and something that Lisa has learned along the way is just how interconnected us as pet parents, you know, how we are with our animals and how sometimes something that's bothering us might be manifesting in our animals. Something that's manifesting in our animals might be a reflection of us. It's all very interconnected and how she's able to work with both pets and the pet parents. And she shares some really fascinating stories about her work as well. So I think you're going to love this episode. I can't wait for you to meet Lisa Tully. So we are here today with Lisa Tully. Lisa, how are you? Oh, I'm great, Erin. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I have so much I want to talk to you about. I always love to start out by asking, though, about childhood experiences. I did not really grow up with pets. I didn't even know I was a dog person until I was in my 20s. So what did that look like for you? Did you grow up with animals? Did you always have a dog? Yeah, I always had a dog growing up and cats as well. And as a young child, I, I would go to the parks and come home with like sick seagulls and sick pigeons. And <laughs> so I was at it from a young age. <laughs> and so I know that you are an animal communicator. I have actually worked with somebody in the past who is a medium. And I know from a young age, she would, people thought it was imaginary friends, but she has had her medium abilities her entire life, even from childhood. Have you always had these spiritual practices about you or is that something that came as you got older? Oh, I think it was definitely born in, you know, I was born in with it. Um, but I think it only became apparent to me when I was a young adult. But as I reflect back, I realized as a young child, I didn't really fit in. People thought I was a bit strange. Um, I always remember growing up, my mom's like, do you want a TV for your bedroom? Because my brothers had one. Day. And I'd be like, why would I want a TV? Like, I... <laughs> 
So I just always wanted to be out in nature with the animals. It was just, you know, it was in me. But later on in life, meditation made it really clear (laughs) what was there. And so tell us about like your education, your work experiences. Were you also somebody who wanted to be a veterinarian? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Tick that box. I always wanted to be a vet. Yeah. So when I was 16, I worked in a veterinary practice and I ended up staying there for two years and I just got to experience what it was like. So I applied for veterinary medicine and I got into two universities, but the fees were so high. Uh, If I went to those universities, I ended up opting for science, which there was no fees because that was back in my resident country in Ireland. Um, so I ended up doing that and I ended up in the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> I find that so interesting. <laughs> the polar opposite. Yeah. I know that you ended up in Bolivia. Can you tell us that story? Because I was so fascinated reading about this. So when I finished my uh, chemistry degree in university, um. I was asked to do a PhD in chemistry by my professor and I was just like, no, I'm going to Bolivia (laughs) because what had happened to me as a young child was I watched a movie on television. I was about five or six years old and it was a movie about the rainforest and I could still vividly remember it. And I said to myself, my little five, six year old self, I said, when I'm older, I'm going to go to the rainforest. And it never left me. So as soon as I was free of education, I went straight to South America, to the rainforest. And I ended up working in a jungle village uh, called Biatunari. And there, there was a wildlife sanctuary. So these are exotic animals that were rescued as pets or for laboratories or for the trade of the fur. And there'd be monkeys, pumas, jaguars, ocelots, toucans, everything. Everything you'd find in the jungle. And I planned to stay for a year. So I ended up working with an ocelot called Millie. And she is a small jungle cat. And her story was she was found wrapped up in her mother's fur in the market as a kitten with her brother. And they confiscated her because it's illegal. You know, she's a protected species. So she was hand reared. Uh, so she was kind of caught between being a wild animal that is domesticated, but not wild enough to be free. So she needed care. And she. so what I would do was she'd be up in the jungle. It's not a zoo. I was the only person that was allowed to see her. Okay. And she'd be up in the jungle in her cage during the nighttime. And then the daytime, I just let her out and go for walks in the jungle with her. So how how big of a sanctuary is this? I'm trying to just like wrap my head around, you know. Yeah, well, it's even way bigger now. It's it's several hundred acres and acres. And there's there's three different sites that they have now. Like it's massive. So for Millie, to give you an idea, I would walk half an hour up into the jungle, through the land, through the rivers, the trees, um, not a pathway, like just w- w- making your way through the jungle and there she would be. And then I could walk for another half hour in either direction with her on the land. So they had acres and acres because the, some of the animals are set free. So they need the space, you know, to be free. I'm I'm just so fascinated by this. I I would love to to do a trip like that. But at the same time, I feel like that's not who I am as a person. <laughs> like, um, you know, like I like having like a comfortable bed and, you know. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And I think everyone has different different inclinations in life and it's good to own them, you know. Maybe if I was in my 20s, though. <laughs> well, that's when I went. <laughs> <laughs> so it's my understanding that Millie, an experience you had with her, this ocelot, was how you discovered or was at least your maybe your first known experience of being able to communicate with animals. Is that correct? Absolutely. I was with Millie one day and when we walked through the jungle, um, she had a lead, but I would always just let it go and she'd just climb trees and go wherever and come back to me eventually. And so we were walking along the path and there's monkeys in that park. Some are still in under direct care, but some of them have been set free. And the monkeys are 
a little bit scarier than wild monkeys in the sense that they don't have a fear of people, but they've been abused by people. So they can often go for people. And yeah, so I just, I was just, yeah, I had a few experiences. I was like, okay, the monkey's right. I'm a cat person. So, <laughs> so, so one day me and Millie were on the path and in the canopy above a troop of monkeys started moving across like about 15 or so monkeys. And I was just like, okay, here we go. So I just sat there and I said, okay, I'm just going to wait for them to walk, go on by, you know, above. But I was just kind of sitting there and then slowly like jumping gradually branch to branch. I really realized that they were getting closer and they were coming down towards us. Now, Millie wasn't wasn't was free at this point, but she was sitting beside me. And it just happened in a moment where I suddenly realized that there was a potential danger, you know, when they just got that instinct. And I just said, oh, my God. So I just looked at Millie and I just thought in my head, run. And in that instant, the two of us turned and ran the same direction. And she's much quicker than I am. So she (laughs) bounded on ahead. And when I eventually caught up with her, I was just like, oh, wow. And I realized that she had been waiting for me to cop on. (laughs) That, you know, we were in a dangerous situation. And we'd had that telepathic communication where I just took a look and a thought and she ran. We both ran instantaneously. Now, this is a semi-wild animal. You know, uh, so for me, that was my first real major realization of the possibility of animal communication using your mind and your thoughts. I often wonder about animals communicating with each other. And for instance, we had two, I call them our old gals. They've both passed away now. Um, they were the best of friends. Their names were Lucy and Kalua. And I feel terrible talking about this. I didn't like enjoy it or anything, but they were rabbit hunters (laughs) and we would get rabbits in our yard. And over the years, I mean, I can't even tell you how many rabbits they killed. (laughs) It was very upsetting for my husband and I at times. (laughs) And I mean, they just like, they had to have been communicating with each other, you know, and they developed a system and they would run and they would flank and, and, you know, force the rabbit into an area where they knew that they could get. And I mean, in a weird way, it was like this beautiful thing to watch them, you know, and it's like, I know they were communicating with each other. <laughs> like, there's just no doubt. And I just, um, I find it so fascinating that some people poo poo, I don't know, roll their eyes. I, I don't know, don't don't think that uh, that animal communication is real, whether it's between us when I feel like it's obviously they're communicating with us all the time. They're communicating with each other all the time. I guess I, I find it so interesting that some people, I don't know, quote unquote, don't believe this or, or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like what I would say to people who don't believe it's like, well, just break it down. Okay, let's think of some day to day experiences that you may might have have where, say, for example, you are thinking of a friend or a person and suddenly they ring or suddenly you bump into them, you go, God, I was just thinking about you. You were just on my mind. Uh, So that's how simple it can be. That's that intuition. That's that mind-to-mind connection that we all have. And to say that animals are not conscious and aren't able to communicate with one another, then how, when there's possibly an earthquake coming or a tsunami and all the animals just run and they know to to get out of there, there's birds that know, teach each other how to peck the, the lids off certain types of milk bottles. They've got these milk bottles uh, that they designed to stop birds pecking them, but there was one species of birds that they figured it out together. And once a few of them knew, then all of a sudden they all knew because the birds swarm. And they share information. So if you don't believe it, it's like it's about really just being open to exploring this phenomenon that is well documented throughout nature. When you left Bolivia, tell us about your path of of deepening your spirituality, of your meditation practices and, and how you decided to kind of explore this as a career option and you know, make this what your your life's work was about. Yeah, so the next stage after Bolivia was that I um I went back home to Ireland and I was just too too felt too contained. I needed more adventures. So I went to live in in London. And London is the type of city where if you want a master in anything, a genuine master in anything, they're there. 
It is absolutely phenomenal. And it was over there that really my spirituality that had begun blossomed because I met some really influential teachers and my meditation practice started to get deep and I learned how to teach it. So my sense of adventure and my passion for meditation eventually led me to working and doing tours in northern India. So I'd lived between London and India over a three-year period. And the reason I did that was I wanted to fund my time in India through leading tours so that when the tour groups left, I could stay and deepen my meditation practice. So I lived amongst the Tibetan community in Ganj, where the Dalai Lama is resident, and I would attend teachings, public teachings, and then meditation retreats and hang out with the monks. And, and I really, I think hanging out with a community like that for an extended period of time, learning the language, I was able to see the depths of their consciousness. Okay, so they have some pretty amazing healers within their communities. They have oracles that the Dalai Lama would consult, for example, when he's making big decisions. And I remember at one festival, I got to see the oracles in action and the Dalai Lama talking to them. And and the monks would tell me stories about things that happened. And and it really started to expand my consciousness, not only to the meditation, but just to the awareness of how other people live in another reality in another realm, and they take it as normal. Right, like not the hustle bustle, uh, consumerism uh, type existence that that most of us in the Western, you know, civilizations are currently living, right? A hundred percent. Like, I remember one day I was, there was, it's an an earthquake zone there. And um, when the Tibetans fled uh, Tibet and the Indian government gave them that land to live in, it, it was known as an earthquake zone. So the last people to live there were the British. And what the Dalai Lama did and with his community, they started to pray to the land and they put stupas in different places to appease the land. So since they lived there, there's been no um, touch wood, no major earthquakes. But whilst I was there, I experienced lots of tremors. And I remember one day after some tremors had been happening, I was sitting in a shop with one of my friends who's a monk and it was a shop that they sell clothes in the mon- monastic shop for anyone to come in. And this lady, this this nun came in and she handed a piece of paper to the monk, my friend, and it was in Tibetan. And I just, I said, what's this? And he just goes, oh, earthquake prayer. So the Dalai Lama had set, had created a prayer and sent it out to all the Sangha members and the lay people who want to say to, to appease the land because it had been you know, rocky of late. It's just like, you you know, you just, that was on a Tuesday afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I, several years ago now, I learned transcendental meditation and I do that practice uh, twice a day. And my husband does more like guided meditations where he'll listen to, you know, audio thing. And so when you talk about meditation, I know that there's so m- that this can take so many different forms or so many different styles. And I was just curious if there's a, a specific word or, you know, like, how would you describe that form of meditation? I was just curious about that. Yeah. So I suppose I, I used to work with mantras quite a lot as well. Um, I'd be in the Tibetan Buddhist practice and I would do pujas as well, like pujas to Tara, which are prayers. Um, and then I like to do now what I like to do is I like to just do silent meditation and rest in the stillness of my mind. The days it'll let me. <laughs> we are human. <laughs> yeah, I think some people um, get turned off to it because they feel like, oh, my mind just races the whole time. And I I think sometimes it's just kind of being aware that that's what happening that is what's happening is part of the meditation, you know, <laughs> like but that doesn't mean you're bad at it. It just you need to be aware that it's happening. Yeah, it's the human affliction. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's okay, right? Like if your mind's racing, it doesn't mean you're a bad meditator, right? <laughs> no, no. Like and, and if I've got a really busy, racy mind, that's the day I'll, I'll lean back on maybe some guided meditations or some mantras or my prayers. I won't force it, you know. we got to be kind to ourselves. Absolutely. And I, I just think, uh, I think that it's such a way to help our 
minds. And I, ever since I've introduced this into my life, I'm just so thrilled. Like I can tell the difference in me, you know, in, in, in the peace that I feel in, um, the energy level that I have sometimes, like I'm, I'm just, I'm so grateful that I, you know, <laughs> do the practice that I do. Um, and so I always like want people to learn about this. It's such a, there's so many proven benefits, you know, even if you're not looking to focus your whole life around it, just, you know, doing it for a couple you know minutes a day, like, you know, there's so many benefits to it. <laughs> yeah. And to add to that is that for all the people listening that have doggies in their lives, animals in their lives, the animals benefit massively from you meditating. And I think animals are, I are often in a state of meditation themselves. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> and so was it, through this meditation practice that your animal communication and other abilities really deepened? Is that what happened? Yeah. So as I kind of went deeper and deeper into my practice, um, then I came across the idea of actually training in animal communication. Although I'd experienced it with Millie, I didn't quite know it was a thing you could train in. And um, so it was actually a friend of mine, one of my teachers, she said, Lisa, I came across a thing I think it would really suit you. And what happened then was I bought a book on it and I read the book and I tried it out with my friend's dog. Um, I didn't know the dog. I didn't know her life. Her She was actually my vet at the time. I didn't know her uh, living situation. We were just associates, I suppose. And I said, I'm really into this. I said, do you mind if I practice it on your doggy? I'll, you give me a list of questions that you know the answers to. And I don't, and we'll try it out. So this was just from reading the book and I, I was bang on. So I just was like, oh my God. And I realized that the, the meditation was an essential part of the journey to open the heart and still the mind because the animals, you know, if we want to really connect in with them, it's through the heart energy. And if we want to trust what the heart energy is saying to us, we need to still the mind. <laughs> That's where the doubt resides. So, yeah, so, so practicing all those years and continuing to practice is absolutely key um, to making this happen. So that's what woke it up. And then you've also done some studies in more holistic options of treating uh, health also. Is that right? Absolutely. So I didn't just stop with the animal communication. I went on further and I have been studying something called zoopharmacognosy. So that's the scientific term and it, breaking it down, it means animals that know how to self-medicate. So what this is, if you think about it with your dog, you know, sometimes you're putting water out for them to drink in a bowl and they want, they don't want to drink the water in the bowl. They want to drink the water in the dirty puddle out the back. <laughs> and you're like, why are they doing that? Because they know that there's nutrients in that water or even soil-based probiotics or whatever they're, the muddy puddle they're drinking out of or the clay that they're eating or the grass that they're eating. They're actually regulating their body. Okay, so this is a phenomenon that you can go into. There's an amazing book if people are, like to read. There's a book on it. It's called Wild Health by mm -hmm. Cindy Ingle. And she goes into all the examples of zoopharmacognosy. She's a scientist in nature. So this is basically the animals know what they need. So what we do is we basically bring nature to the animals. So domesticated animals don't have as much access to all the natural herbs and grasses that they would like. So I've been trained to use essential oils diluted down, um, floral waters or hydrosols, herbs, flower essences, these kind of things where if I put out, say, some frankincense oil and some lavender oil and then maybe some cypress oil and I just, you know, if I put the three bottles down essential oils with the lid still on them. And I, you know, let my cat Georgie have a little look and he'll go straight over to the one he wants. He'll start sniffing, say, the cypress. And I go, OK, so Georgie's choosing the cypress today. So that's it in a very basic form. Um, and then that what that does is it heals them mentally, emotionally, physically and spiritually. And it is a big stress relief. Because they can heal themselves and then the people, the guardians of the animals, they can go, all right, okay, so this is what they need. You know, when you're worried about your, your, your doggy when they're sick, yeah, you know, you can't, you don't know what's wrong with them. So, so they tell us what's wrong and they tell us what they need to this art form. It is an art form. I have seen this. I think a lot of dog owners see this in a very basic form 
um, and I, I see this like in a lot of Facebook groups, like my dog is eating grass in the yard, you know, does that mean he has an upset stomach or like, is that, is that a form of that also? hundred percent. That's it, you know, and, and like some, some animals like cats, for example, they love to eat grass and, and get sick again, but it's, it's, and dogs, it's just looking though, if they're doing it at an excessive amount, if they're always out there constantly eating grass, then what they're doing is there's, there's a problem there, you know, or I was with a, a doggy client there during the week and the guardian was telling me that she doesn't feed the dog until about a half 11 or 12. And I was like, that's a very late time to be feeding a dog. I said, does a dog not want to be fed in the morning time? And she's like, oh no, he won't touch his food until that time. So what the dog is showing is by not eating, again, he's actually self-regulating because the stomach is most active in the morning times between the hours of nine and 11. So that's the busiest time of the stomach when it does its most work. And sometimes when the stomach is out of balance, it can actually show the the imbalance at that time. So the stomach is, he can't, literally can't stomach his food until the stomach calms down until it gets later after half 11 or 12. So I, when I explain that to her, she's like, oh my God. So if they refuse to eat dry food as well, if you put down dry food and they'll wait, 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 wait for a day or it's because they're, they, so they can't eat it. They know it's not suiting them and they're trying to show you, but then they may eat it out of desperation. That makes so much sense. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was thinking that there are some people who have this idea that you either are like a science based person or you're like a, I hate this term. I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but woo woo, <laughs> yeah. um, like spiritual person. And I think some people think that these are like mutually exclusive options. You know, you're either science-based or you're a woo-woo person. And so I love the fact that you have this very science-based, you know, education and, and, and work experience, but also this very sort of more holistic angle, this spiritual angle. And I personally don't think that these things are mutually exclusive. I actually think they're very interconnected and that you know, if you get into advanced enough science, you understand how all these things are actually all interconnected and and very science-based. And so I was just curious, like, are people surprised that you, um, I don't know, are people surprised at your various life experiences? And and what do you think, like, do you think that having a science-based background, has that affected your thoughts on working more holistically? I'm just curious how this has all sort of played out for you and what it means to you. Yeah, so I'd say it it definitely eases people's minds when they hear I have a, a science degree. When they're coming to for me for work on the holistic side, some people makes them rest easy because they I don't know, on some level they feel I'm going to be more responsible. <laughs> That's the vibe I get off them, you know. Um and for me what it actually does though is as well, I think it really helps in this area of work um, in that the sense that I'm not afraid to go the science route with people who need it, but I'm also not afraid to have a conversation with a veterinary practitioner. OK, so it can really, really help. And the woo-woo side of it, I guess I do have the clients then that are are more woo-woo, um, but they they are just really bought in straight away. And they actually, to be honest with you, you know what they say to me? They go, you know what I love about you? <laughs> it's like, You've got the science background as well, so they can't argue with you. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> So it kind of comes from that, you know, that field. And then the the other the other way I would uh, express what I experience with this dynamic that I have is say you have a couple, okay, a man and a woman, husband and a wife or partners or whatever, and the dog is sick. And the wife wants me to work. Nothing's worked at the vets. The wife wants me to work on the dog. And the husband holds it. He's like, oh, I don't know. I just want to give the vet another chance. And they'll actually wait until the dog's almost dead. Seriously. And then they'll go, okay, we'll try Lisa now. 
And then you have to work so much harder. So I don't want to like put everybody in a box, but in general, I suppose most of my clients organically tend to be women and they're more comfortable with that woo-woo side. I uh, <laughs> I have seen that exact dynamic that you're discussing between a husband and wife play out, not necessarily in my house, but like I know that exact dynamic. Um, honestly, I mean, <laughs> my husband is equally, if not more woo-woo uh, than I am, and I, I'm probably blocking it, but this whole uh, crystal collection behind me here is actually all his. <laughs> you're a lucky woman. <laughs> I am. I really am. Um I really, really am. <laughs> so I, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, I have seen uh, on your website, you talk about being clairaudient and clairsentient. And I think the most common term that people have heard before is clairvoyant. Uh, and so it actually wasn't until fairly recently that I learned like, oh, the, there's different clairs. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could explain what those are, the different clairs. <laughs> Oh, I'd love to. So, um, well, clear audience is where it's basically called clear hearing. So that's when you can you hear messages of the animals and or any kind of intuitive beings that you're working with. So I I'm clear audience in the sense that when I work with the animals, I hear their messages in distinct sentences. And that when I started meditating, I started to hear messages from my spirit guides in distinct sentences. And I was like, mm, am I making this up? <laughs> so, so I just tried, tried it, tried it out, followed the guidance and it worked. So that's what you would have, what you would get with Claire audience. And Claire sentience basically means clear feeling. Um, so that's when you walk into a room and you automatically feel the energy and you go, ooh. What's going on here? Or you're going to buy a house and you step out of the car and you're in a neighborhood and you kind of go, mm, don't like the feeling of this. So clairsentience is that innate knowingness of what the feel of what comes from a feeling. So in terms of the animal work is if, if I come across a very sad dog, I'll feel it in my heart energy. They'll send it to my heart energy. Um, clairvoyance um, is clear seeing. So that's where you can get images and pictures in your mind. So a lot of artists, for example, if you're doing a painting, they get these beautiful visions that come into their into their mind. Or if I'm working with the animals, sometimes it's like they switch on a DVD in my mind and they want to show me something that happened. Okay, so they'll they'll show me the the, the pictures. Um, and there's two more clairs. There's there's clair aliens, which is clear smelling. So when I sometimes before when I remember when I was working with a, a little kitten the kitten got lost and um I was tuning into the kitten and I could actually smell that the kitten was in a forest I could smell the earth right this was the message that the the kitten gave me or if I'm asking an animal what's what's the type of food you need right now to rebalance your meridian systems and I can smell chicken or yeah something like that that would come true in that way and then clear ambience is clear tasting where you might actually taste the chicken oh wow uh, have you experienced these like in all different ways yeah yeah they all come in but I think with um everybody has a natural affinity to one or two at the start before they consciously start working on them. And then you can wake up more and more as you go along. You know, I was thinking about uh, like one of the things you just said, right? Like, let's say, you know, you go over somebody's house and you walk in and you're like, oh, they just had an argument, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, I feel like everybody has had that type of experience before where maybe you can like, read something like you walk into the room and you're like oh they had a bad day or and yet we like so many people also kind of don't again believe that that these things are real but I feel like we have all had some type of experience like this so I was just curious you kind of touched on it here like do you think all of us have some kind of inclination for this but some people develop it more uh, or like do you think some people are like more um, gifted and I was thinking like of music right like 
I learned how to play an instrument as a kid. Like I could play the flute, but I am not like a, what I would call a musician. And like, you know, I have friends that can just like pick things up and just hear it and play it. And it's like, I am not that person, you know? And, and so anyway, I was just curious what your, your thoughts were about that. Yeah. So um, I do teach animal communication. I've been teaching it for years. And so my experience is, is that when I teach people, I think everybody can get it to some degree uh, and there's different, different levels. And the reason I say that is because we all have a heart. All right. And the animal nation are waiting for us to connect with them. So it's not just us doing it on our own. It's the animal nation supporting and encouraging us and willing us to do it. So that's what I would say about that, that it can come. But having said that as well, I do believe just touching on what you said about being able to play the flute and some of your friends can just play it by ear. Going back to my experiences of India and what I learned was in, in the cultures over there, they believe there's something called a city. And a city is a latent talent that lies within all of us. And it's up to us over how many lifetimes or how many hours of practice or whatever we do in this life where we can awaken that city. And then that city is our, you know, gift, our purpose, our raison d'etre, and we can shine it out into the world. So it sounds like your friends who can play the music by ear and are just really, really gifted, you know, that could be their city. But it doesn't mean that you can't learn to play the flute. So it's the same with the animal communication. It's the same with everything. That's how I see it. Right, right. No, that makes sense. So tell us about the work that you do with animals. I know... Um, you do animal communication work. Like if somebody wants to have a session with you, like what does that look like? So I work with animals all over the world and I work with any species. So my strap line is any species, anywhere I can help. <laughs> um, so the what I do is, first of all, I'll connect into a photograph. And depending on what the issue is as well, I offer different readings. So if it's an animal communication reading, I do it through photos, purely through photos, no matter where you are. And then that can be me answering any questions you have for the animal or exploring any problems, giving the animal a voice, preparing them for stuff. And then I send people my my findings afterwards um, and maybe some botanicals if they need it as well. And sometimes what can happen in my readings with the animals is I through the animal, we identify that maybe the person needs some healing as well. So if I share the botanicals, the, get the animal to share the botanicals with the person, they can help each other that way. So that's the basic readings. And then I go, I've got the other readings that I do where there's a, a problem, right? Where there's like a traumatized animal or the animal has a physical condition going on. And what we do then is I bring in a bit of traditional Chinese medicine. I bring in the zoopharmacognosy and the animal communication. And what I do is I work to identify where the imbalance is in the body using the Chinese medicine. And the animal shows me, they help me really narrow it down. And once we identify where the imbalances is within the organs, within the meridian system, then the animal through the zoocog tells me, what botanicals they need to bring the organs or the, the the meridians back into balance. So that happens through photos as well. And then if the people and the animals are living far away from me, different parts of Ireland or different countries, um, I'll post out the botanicals and then we do a video call with the animal and I teach them how to do the offering of the botanicals in that type or I'll do a house or a yard visit to the horses or whatever um, and then depending on how how big a problem it is we you know we, we continue to work together this work is not a quick fix but I aim for it to be a lasting fix and that can take time you know yeah I was curious if there are any like commonalities common reasons uh, that people work with you like uh, they have a fearful dog or, you know, there's been a trauma or there's some kind of medical concern or aggression. Like, are there any sort of common things that you see or are contacted about? Okay, so I'm contacted about the wild and wonderful things. <laughs> All the wild and wonderful things can happen, our, our beautiful animal family. But there's definitely some patterns. 
And I would say one of the big things is pedigree dogs um, who have a lot of trauma in them, separation, anxiety, nervousness because of a lot of interbreeding or mom has been bred so much and the puppies have been taken away too early and that develops into emotional problems and it also develops into a lot of digestive problems, things like that. So that's a, and skin issues, then it becomes a skin issue eventually. So that can be something that really comes true a lot. And also what I tend to get a lot of as well is dogs that perhaps resource guard. Okay, so they'll guard the food, they'll guard the person or whatever. And they are in-depth cases and they are not, that takes time, you know, because there's a lot of human animal dynamics going on there. And then on the other scale of it, I suppose, I, I collaborate with holistic vets here in Ireland. So I get a lot of animals that have serious, serious medical problems, like they might have cancers or sarcoids or they've swallowed something, their dog has swallowed something, they've had surgery, the surgery hasn't, you know, they're still in recovery or lameness, arthritis, that kind of thing. And then it even goes to the next level where I work with end of life cases. So sometimes the vets will send me dogs um, or cats or horses where the guardian knows it's time to let them go, but they want to do it from a, a mindful way, a holistic way. Um, or people will just contact me direct without going to the vets and I'll, you know, I'll help them. I'll give the animal a voice. Um, so my work just spans such a, <laughs> such a wide way, but there's definitely some common themes that come through. So you had mentioned that you'll work with a, an animal through their photo. Um, can you explain how that works or, or yeah, can you explain how that works? <laughs> So uh, when you train in animal communication, you can learn how to do it in person, but also uh, uh, you learn how to do it through photos because telepathy is a form of heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind communication. And because it is a different form of communication than actually speaking to a person, it's uh, like face-to-face. It's not limited by space, distance, or time because it's done through intuition. It's an intuitive form of communication. So I think the best way to describe it is like when we send an email to somebody, we send the email off and it goes up to the satellite and then it goes down and it lands in Baltimore. It goes from Ireland to Baltimore. Um, So it's really quick. Whereas if we actually send a physical letter, we write the letter, put in the post box and it goes on the journey on the airplane. So if you imagine that regular communication is like posting the letter, whereas intuitive communication is like dialing up to a satellite and down. But instead of a, a satellite, I believe it's actually the universal mind, the universal consciousness, the Akashic records, whatever you want to call it, that sacred body of knowledge that's up there in the universal mind. So you, you, you're without even having to think about, it, without even having to figure it out, you're you're accessing that, and you're accessing the information. So that's how you work with a photo because you're just looking at the eyes of the animal through the photo. And that's how you're sensing into their heart energy, their mind, their soul. You know, that's how it works. <laughs> Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I did want to share just uh, for everybody listening. I I have worked with, I have never worked directly with you, but I would like to. Um, but I have worked with animal communicators in the past. And I, I had this really amazing experience one time where um, we had just adopted our dog, Nino. And we knew from the shelter that he was a very fearful guy and he was very like shut down and everything scared him. I don't know whether he had ever like been in a house before, but like the furnace kicking on the dishwasher, you know, just every noise just terrified him. And we really wanted to just get some extra insight of what we could do to make him feel safe and comfortable and welcome, you know, in our home. And so that was kind of our um, impetus for, for working with the animal communicator. And the first thing that she said to us was, what's going on with his stomach? And we were kind of like, oh, oh, um, I, I don't know. So about two weeks later, uh, Nino became very ill and we had to take him to the vet. And we found out prior to us adopting him, uh, he had eaten a car tire, like a steel belted radial 
car tire, <laughs> not a whole one, but enough of one. And there were all these pieces of it in his stomach that had, you know, caused this like impaction and he had to have surgery to remove all of this. And Tim and I just kept looking at each other like she called it. I mean, literally, that was the first thing she had said to us was what's going on with his stomach? And we didn't know yet, but she was right. <laughs> yeah, good woman. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that you had just touched on uh, a few moments ago was sort of the interconnectedness between humans and animals and how sometimes uh, people can be a mirror for something going on with their animal and maybe the animal is a mirror for something going on with the person. What have been your experiences like that? So this is a huge part of my work. It's it's a part of my work that has found me and won't let, it has a tight hold. <laughs> I see a book coming. <laughs> in the future I love it topic. I love yeah, it yeah really so I, I share a story with you I think it's the easiest way to demonstrate the power of this work um I was asked to help with a little dog uh, a shih tzu dog who had become paralyzed in the hind legs and this dog was being treated by one of the holistic vets that I know and the the lady she approached me because there was an option for surgery which was thousands and the surgery was only going to guarantee about a 90% improvement of the, which is a good improvement all the same, you know, from paralysis. Um, but this was financially wasn't an option for her. And the the second option the holistic vet gave her was, well, what we could do is we can try steroids and crate rest and see if we can get back 70%. And this particular vet practices kinesiology on the animals. So he's well able to pick up you know the functions of the body so she'd heard about me and she uh, asked me to help so what I did was I I did a house call for this for sure and I identified I was able to identify a pattern because when you think about an animal being paralyzed um energetically there's something they're unwilling to move forward to okay there's some block um, and I, I, I very quickly flipped the case around to the guardian and I said, what's your block? I said, what are you not moving forward? You know, what, where are you paralyzed in your life? And she's a very open guardian, you know, which makes my work 10 times easier. <laughs> and she's just like, oh yeah, well, like I feel so blocked financially. I feel so out of control. I feel paralyzed. I've got, you know, we've the heating bills, we can't pay our heating bills. And, you know, she has two young kids and one of them is a little girl in a wheelchair. And so, you know, this, and she's a single mom and the van had broken down and they can't oh get, God. yeah. So the story I'm goes, cry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the little dog comes along and he's on the beach and he's playing and he has a, a he has a he had kind of a, a, he had some weakness in his spine anyway that she knew about but he landed badly at, at that particular beach day and that's when he became paralyzed so I went down anyway and I did the zoo gave him the botanicals to work with but I he also selected a flower essence mix for his person and I, I explained to her what the story that essence mix tells. I said, does that resonate? She's like, oh, my God, that is so me. So so she took the essences and the the doggy, what we did was we put the hydrosols in little bowls, like one bowl had cedar wood and the other bowl had angelica root and the other. Bowl. So he could self-select from each bowl. But there was over over 10 animals in this house. So they all started to drink from the bowl. The other dogs, the cats, the other dog the week before it had a stroke. You can't make this up. So she had a vet bill from the other dog having a stroke. So they all started to drink from these bowls. And sure enough, uh, instead of being on crate rest for six weeks, she could only manage to keep him in the crate for two weeks. And he started to get so healthy and so, so full of energy and started running around that she just had to let him out. And what happened was when she brought him back to the vets, to Joe's, um, he was just like, I can't believe the dog has not only recovered so quickly, but gained 100% function of the legs back again. Wow. So this is the power of the animal's message being taken on by the person and her running with it, being willing to look at it. And, you know, it was like another theme to that story was she didn't feel like she could ask for help. 
Okay, so it's like, well, but at the same time, she's a huge member of the community and gives a huge amount. So I said, well, all these people you give to, would they not want to give back to you at this time? And she's like, oh, so I said, you work on that. You think about that. We kept giving her drops. And fast forward a few months now, the dog is flying and she has now put out a GoFundMe page to get a new van. And so she's come along a huge, huge area. So and the dog with the stroke, he his head was tilted to the side. She straightened up her, her tilt. And there was an extremely nervous cat in the house that is no longer nervous at all. Of visitors coming in because they all got the healing from that little doggy's um, botanicals. Wow. (laughs) Do you see the book? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, this is absolutely a book. I had, I had two just like brief examples I wanted to share with you of like what this has looked like in my life. Like, first of all, I just always think it's interesting that Penny and I both have a wonky right hip. She has been like that since we adopted her. And shortly after we adopted her, I had a medical issue that that reared up. And ever since then, my right hip has bothered me. (laughs) And Penny and I actually go to the same chiropractor because she works on people and animals. Um, So I just, I don't know, I always find that fascinating that we both have this wonky right hip situation. There's there's some there's a message in there. <laughs> and then I also just had to share about my husband's name is Tim and I told you about our guy Nino who's a very fearful guy. And the similarities in Tim and Nino always strike me, which is that they both had early life traumas. Uh they both tend to be hypervigilant in their surroundings. They're the first ones to notice anything that has changed in, you know, in the environment, whether that's, you know, in the yard or in the, you know, world, like, uh, they, they both kind of have that aptitude. And while Nino is very fearful of people, particularly anybody other than my husband and I, he's just doesn't kind of want to interact with them. And sometimes you kind of hear that, dogs that have had a bad experience are more fearful of men but yet from day one Nino and Tim have like Nino's just always been attracted to Tim and um and they also both just have sort of a like a single-minded focus and determination when they are going after things you know and so I just always find that fascinating (laughs) they're a total mirror of one another yeah (laughs) You know, and like what what they could do is like if your your husband, if he feels on some days like he's really out of sorts and he's gone far into his hypervigilance or whatever, is to pay attention and see if the dog has gone far into <laughs> the doggy's hypervigilance as well. Like you can play around with it. And then when you recognize that, you kind of come back and just get aware and just go, you know what? I'm just going to take a breath and going to sit and watch the dog, see how the dog responds and the dog settles. So using that, the animals then become your healing barometer, right? When you become aware of it, when you see, when you notice that you're out of sorts and they start to act out of sorts, you, you can pull yourself out of it quicker. You know, they start to mirror and reflect it back in, an, in a really obvious way. So he could play around with that. Like, <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> So do you have any other stories that you'd like to share of just your work in, with animals? Yeah, I'd love to share, share a story of something that's quite relevant. Well, I, I'm not so sure about the States, but here in Ireland, we're coming into fireworks season. Do you get fireworks this time of year in the States? Uh, not this time of year. We get them kind of uh, from May to our fireworks season's kind of ending. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Well, you still have a, you still have a fireworks season. Our right? neighborhood definitely does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're coming up to Halloween now. So Halloween's an Irish, uh, an Irish tradition. Like I know it's in the States as well, but it comes from Ireland. So that's the 31st of October, so on. And so our fireworks are already going off now and they'll continue on into the new year. Okay, and so we get a lot of animals that are have massive firework phobias. Yes, my dog Penny does. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. I want to get this message out. I'm very passionate about this because there's one doggy I want to tell you a little story about, and his name was Prince. 
And Prince had a debilitating fear of fireworks where he would be, as soon as the evenings get dark, he starts getting afraid to go for his walks. He anticipates the fireworks and he would bite himself and just, and the, the Guardian had tried loads and he'd tremble and cower and hide. And it's really hard to watch. And he's a senior doggy, you know, he's 12. He was 12 when I started working on him. He's 13 now. And she came across my work and she just said, look, I've tried everything with this doggy for the firework fears. Is there anything you can do? So I started to work with him using the zoo pharmacognosy and he was self-selecting his own oils. Now, it was during Halloween time when the fireworks were already active where we were working on them, which is not the best time to do it because they're already at a heightened state. Right. Because you're pushing the, the traumas up and out to be released. That's is, you know, think better out than in using these botanicals. But we, we we did the work anyway. So he did really well. He calmed down. He was doing really great during the fireworks. And the fireworks had stopped for Halloween. And we, it was a bit of a quiet time. And he shifted. He went on to a different set of oils. And there's one particular oil that he selected. It's called Yarrow. And yarrow is for deep soul wounds, okay? Achillea millifolium is the name of the plant. And it's the Roman soldiers back in the ages would use yarrow and rub it on their wounds, their their war wounds, okay? Because it literally knits wounds back together again. So it knits soul wounds back as well. And what happened was he selected his yarrow. He'd only had one sniff. And then during that, later on that day, two really loud random fireworks went off in the afternoon and he had the worst response ever. He weed the floor. He was clawing at the door to get out, which he never did. And he turned around and starts to bite and pull his hair out. Okay. And and made a wound on his leg. So his guardian was just like, oh, bring him to the vets. Like it was a Friday. And then she gets back in touch with me on the Monday and she said, oh, you never guess what happened. And I said, oh, I said, did he have the yarrow? And she goes, oh, yeah, but just one sniff. I was like, "Mm, that's all it takes. Because what yarrow does is sometimes you have a bit of a healing crisis where the trauma gets worse as it's being pushed out. And it was just really bad luck that the fireworks went off again at that time for Prince. But once I realized that it was that, I knew that he had actually had what I would call a past life trauma. I knew at that point we had gone, so he, he, he had gone super deep. He chose to use the oil. He chose to sniff the oil. He knew what he was doing. And uh, nothing about this is, is goes beyond animal choice. So I went with that. And I realized that he was he was attacking that one part of his leg, only that one part. So even when they had to put a cone on him and as soon as the cone came off, he'd go back to that one part. And I said, "Okay, there's a soul wound. There's some kind of because a lot of animals were in wars. Okay, so they carry that memory from previous lifetimes. Or if you don't, if lifetimes doesn't resonate with you, just think of it as intergenerational trauma. Okay, trauma that's passed down to the generations. So I switched it up then and I used an oil called benzoin, which removes physical traumas from the body. So he was so heightened to it that his guardian couldn't get anywhere near to dress the wound or anything. So I got her to put a bit of the benzoin oil on her hand and stand like three feet away and just aim it at the wound. And uh, I was on the video call watching this and the dog instantly started to yawn. I said, this is it. I said, he starts to release the trauma. I said, stay there, stay there. And from that point forward, he stopped going at the wound. And then we had New Year's Eve and fine, sat on the couch, fireworks going off. He's just, he was a little bit anxious, but like, just fine, didn't cower. So I just want to share that with people that it is possible to help the darlings that are absolutely terrified by fireworks. Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Lisa, I could just talk to you all day. (laughs) So do you want to tell us how people can learn more about you and and how to work with you? Oh, I'd love to. So there's different ways people can work with me. If you go onto my website, it's animalhealing.ie because I'm in Ireland.ie. And I do different offerings. I can obviously work to heal your animal friend, uh, work to heal you as well if you want to. And I also have a membership program, a monthly membership. And this is for people who want to become like holistically minded animal guardians and learn tippets from me, meditate with me and the animals each month. So that's online. So anybody can join. 
Um, but then if people are really, really good and really inspired by this talk, want to learn this stuff, I also teach it as well. So you'll find that on my website. You can learn all this from me. That's wonderful. I'll make sure we have links in the show notes so everybody can find you. Thank you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much for your time today, Lisa. Uh, thanks, Erin. And thanks to all the listeners. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lisa as much as I did. If you're ever curious about what it's like to work with an animal communicator, shoot me an email or a DM and I'll let you know about some of my other experiences as well. I really do think that it can be a tool in your toolbox when you're dealing with a situation with your dog. And I definitely take Lisa's point that it's better to contact her sooner rather than later because she can do a lot more and have a lot more options when things aren't completely dire. You probably know I'm like a huge dog health nerd and I love using alternative and holistic health practices. And I think like Lisa described that dynamic so perfectly that some people wait until it's the absolute last resort to to try some of these more alternative ideas. And I, I wish that we gave ourselves permission to try these things sooner rather than later overall, because there really are a lot of interesting modalities out there for animal health as well as for people health. And I wish we didn't consider these things only as a last resort. So make sure you check the links in the show notes so that you can find Lisa's website and find out more about working with her. I'll also have some other links for you about meditation. The type of meditation that I do is called TM or transcendental meditation. And with this, you actually go to a class and you get assigned a word that becomes your mantra. And then you basically chant in your head, not out loud, but just say this word over and over again in your mind for 20 minutes twice a day. And it's really powerful. And I've been doing it for over three years now. And it's like the best thing I've ever done in my life introducing this practice. If you're just starting out or curious or more interested in the guided meditations, I'll have a link in the show notes to my husband Tim's favorite meditation playlist. So I hope you'll check that out. And we can't leave this episode without talking about zoopharmacognosy. I think I said that right. But this whole study of animals self-selecting and self-medicating. I'm really fascinated by this. I'll have a link in the show notes to the book, uh, Wild Health, that Lisa mentioned, if you want to check that out. It was really cool to me that there's a whole study of science about what we typically see if our dogs, for instance, are eating grass because they have an upset stomach. That's something that my Nino does all the time because he has a very sensitive stomach. But I was reading more online about this. I'll have some additional links for you in the show notes about all types of species of animals from birds to insects to monkeys that all have shown this zoopharmacognosy, self-medicating through nature. And, you know, it's just so fascinating how animals do have this innate intelligence about them to heal themselves. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. Make sure you check the link in the show notes for more information about working with our guest, Lisa Tully. Remember, you can always find me on Instagram at Believe in Dog Podcast with underscores or on Facebook at Believe in Dog Podcast. So until next time, this is Aaron Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.